Amen. Instant gratification. Humans have always been tempted to forfeit their integrity and, and even a relationship with God for instant gratification. That's been an age-old problem, but there's never been a, a time in history where instant gratification could be as instantaneous as it is today. There's one example from my lifetime. Uh, my family, growing up, we had dial-up internet, and a bunch of you, you don't even know what that is. So instead of just looking at your phone and touching the internet browser, what you had to do is you had to sit down at an actual computer. You had to sit down, and you clicked on the internet button, and what would happen is the computer would make weird noises, like beep, 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 and it's like it was like a phone call to connect to the internet, and it could take like a minute or two, and you could just lose it randomly at times. And we thought this was revolutionary. You could download a song in like a couple of minutes, maybe five minutes, something like that. If you wanted a short video, you had to budget like an hour or something, something like that, and you thought it was awesome. Where today, people have 5G internet available to them 24-7, wherever they are on their smartphones. And people get frustrated when they want to watch like a two-hour video and it takes a second to buffer, right? Like, why, why is this taking so long? It's just crazy. Online shopping, online dating, online gambling, online streaming movies, social media, these things have trained us to feel entitled to what we want when we want it. And I, I saw a little, uh, little uh, image today that I think captures our culture so well. It says this, instant gratification takes, takes too long. That's our culture right there. Now, I want to be clear, I'm not anti-technology. Technology has given us so many wonderful blessings, but it would be naive for us to, to not realize the increase, increased pressure and influence that our instant gratification culture can have on us, especially spiritually. Our passage today, though, it reminds us that God's timeline for his promises are often radically different than our timeline. And since a life of faith, since it requires us to wait on the promises of God, often for a very long time, the big question of this passage is how can we be sure God will come through? How can we be sure that God is going to fulfill his promises? See that in our text? We're going to break it into two main points. We're going to look at Abram's question and God's confirmation. So if you're taking notes, those two main points are Abram's question and God's confirmation. For our first main point, let me remind you that we're in Genesis chapter 15 in our series through the book of, of Genesis. And chapter 15 is one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible. As we saw last week, it's the first time in all scripture the word believe is used. And while examples of faith and trusting of God have already been recorded in Genesis, this is the first time the mechanics of salvation are explicitly stated in scripture. In fact, the, the start of Genesis chapter 15, it feels like you're reading right out of the New Testament. Verse six, it says, Abram believed God and he credited it to him as righteousness. That verse it's quoted four times in the New Testament, and it's foundational to the argument for justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that the reality of that doctrine, the seed reality of it, is on display, even in the very first book of Scripture. Now, the first section of chapter 15, it deals with Abram doubting whether God can give him and his barren wife a child. 
And what God does, if you remember, is he confirms that crucial promise by taking Abram outside, probably very early in the morning, and showing him the stars. Have you ever wondered why God did that? Why had him go outside? Well, the text is clear. God wanted to emphasize again how many descendants Abram would have. He says, Abram, can you, can you count the stars? No, you can't. And even though you don't have any kids now, you're going to have descendants like that. You, you won't even be able to count them. They're so innumerable. So it's clear that's part of what God wanted to do. But I think there's likely another reason as well. And it's something that we've all experienced in our lives. And that's when you walk outside on a night and, and it's clear and you're just blown away by the stars. Like we know they're there, but you go outside and you're just, just captivated in a fresh way by how incredible the night sky is. I think God wanted to remind Abraham, I made all of that. I spoke that into existence. All the galaxies, all the trillions and trillions and trillions of stars, I just made that, Abram. And if I created the whole universe, if I sustain it, then giving you a child, <laughs> that's child's play. <laughs> that's, a, that's easy for me. Now, as Abram, as he's outside looking at the stars, that's where Moses clarifies that he believed God. He believed God. He looked at his impossible circumstances, but he factored in God. Not in the sense of positive, you know, wishful thinking, I really want a kid. There'd be no reason for him to think that he and his barren wife could have a child unless God had promised it. God had promised him. And so the, the really foundation of faith, the heart of faith is the belief that God has the ability to do what he's promised, that God will do what he has promised to do. And so the first reason we can know God will fulfill his promises is that he has the power to do it. He's the creator. Nothing is too difficult for him. Now, God didn't just stop there. Our passage begins with God reaffirming his other great promise that he made to Abraham back in, in Genesis chapter 12. And we see this in verse 7. It says, he, God, also said to him. So here's the second confirmation. He says, I'm the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to, present, to possess. Now, we know, remember, from verse 6, that Abram believed God, that he believed God's promises. But notice how he responds in verse 8. I love this. But he, Abram, said, Lord God, how can I know that I'll possess it? If you're taking notes, underline that question. How can I know that I'll possess it? Isn't that what we do all the time with God? He believed God. We were told he believed, but he's still, he's still asking. There's still anxiety here. Now God has patiently confirmed his tremendous promise to give him a son, but immediately after when he reminds Abraham of this promise, Abraham, with respect, he, he, he has reverence. He calls him Lord God, but he reveals he's concerned. There's still a degree of doubt. Now, Abraham, at this point, he had seen God do some incredible things. He'd seen God deliver him and protect him and lead him in some huge ways. And yet there's still doubt. Now, why is that? Well, I think you could put it this way. When God's timeline for fulfilling his promise does not equal our timeline, then it tends to lead to disappointment, doubt, or frustration. 
When God doesn't operate, when we hope that he will, when he doesn't fulfill his promises the way that we desire, then it often leads to doubts in our lives. Now, Abraham, he'd waited many, many years for a son, and he'd been following God. He had left the country that he lived in, his family, his whole life behind. He'd followed God's radical call, and he's been walking with God for years at this point. And God, he had not just promised him a son, he'd, he'd explicitly promised him the land of Canaan. And do you know how much Abraham owned of the land of Canaan at this point? Not a square inch. He owned zero, <laughs> nothing there. And I like how one pastor summarized God's interactions, his big calls to Abraham and communications with Abraham in his life. He said that when God called Abram to leave his country, Abram said, okay, where are we going, God? And God said, I'll tell you later. You fast forward, God tells him, I'm going to give you this land. And Abram says, when, God? And God says, I'll tell you later. And you fast forward and God says, I'm going to give you and Sarah, the two of you, I'm going to give you a son together. And Abram's like, how is that even possible? And God says, I'll tell you later. And then Abram's biggest test, after he gets his son, God says, I want you to sacrifice him to me. And Abram says, why? And God says, I'll tell you later. Now, we'll get to that story in Genesis chapter 22. But what I want you to see is that the life of faith, it involves waiting on God. It involves waiting on God. And that's hard to do, isn't it? I don't know you, but I know if you're trying to follow Christ, that you know it's difficult to wait on God. It's difficult to trust his promises. You know, some in our church, you've just graduated high school or college, or you're about to. And God promises that he has a good, pleasing, and perfect will for our lives. But when you're young, actually at any stage in life, it's so easy, instead of looking to the Lord, seeking him, trying to let him lead you, it is so easy to, to try and just independently go after what we want, to take matters into our own hands. Some of you in, in our church, you're single, and you'd really like to be married. And that was where I was at after I graduated. Many of my friends got married right, right out of college, and so I had to wait probably seven or eight years afterwards. And that was a really difficult season for me. I, I wanted to be married. I saw my friends raising their kids. And so there's that challenge wondering, am, am I going to get married? God doesn't explicitly promise that, but I, I wanted it. But I look back at that time, and as difficult as it was, it was also one of the sweetest in terms of the things that God taught me and the way he drew me closer to himself. Now, others of you here, you're raising kids right now and parenting. There is so much waiting on the Lord in parenting. If you're a parent, if you're a parent your primary responsibility before God is to point your kids towards Christ. Not just in what you teach them, but in the way that you live. And, and that's not this one-time thing where you sit them down and, and you tell them Jesus loves you and died on the cross for you. It's, like it, it's the rest of your life. The rest of your life you'll be sharing truth with them, pointing them towards the Lord. And often it takes decades before you can have some measure of confidence that they've actually taken ownership of their faith for themselves. That it's not just your faith they're kind of imitating, but they personally trust in the Lord. Parenting is all about waiting on God. Some of you are older. Many in our church are, are dealing with really difficult health issues. And if we get old enough, all of us are going to experience that. And that presents big challenges to your faith as well. And so my point is to help us see that, that waiting on 
God. That, that's going to be part of every season of, of following Christ. And that's why I love Abram's question. There's at least two reasons I'm so glad that we have this interaction between God and Abram. And the first is that it shows Abram, he's just a human being like us. He's not some superhero. He doesn't have this, you know, just downloaded faith that, that is perfect all of the time. He'd seen God do incredible things, and yet he was still susceptible to doubt and to sin, just like we are, even as believers. I think that's part of why Moses inserts where he does that Abram believed God and credited it to him as righteousness. He wants us to know Abraham's actually a believer. He's actually right before God, and he's still wrestling with these promises. The second reason I love this question is because God's response shows how remarkably gentle and gracious he is with those who are seeking to trust him. While God opposes those who proudly reject his word in unbelief, he gives grace to all who humbly ask him for it. One of my favorite examples of this is from Mark chapter 9 when a man brought his demonized son to Jesus. And he says, if you can heal him, would you do it, Jesus? Would you heal my son if you're able to? And Jesus says, if, if I can heal him, everything's possible to the one who believes. And you remember what the man said? He said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. I do believe. But there's a part of me that doesn't. There's a part of me that still doubts. And as believers, we can relate to that. I do believe. But we still wrestle with unbelief. But that prayer... I do believe, help my unbelief. That is a prayer that God loves to answer. Jesus, he healed this man's son, and we're gonna see that, that God, he's gonna give Abram a powerful confirmation of, of his promise and answer to Abram's question, how can I know? God didn't need to do that, but he wanted to. He wanted to strengthen Abram's faith, and he wants to strengthen our faith as well. The book of Psalms, in many ways, it's a master class on how your faith can grow, how your faith can become stronger. When you read the Psalms, what you see all over the place is the psalmist bringing their anxiety to God. They bring their, their frustrations to God, their doubts, their real doubts. They even bring their complaints to God. Did you know that? I heard a pastor say recently that complaining about God is sin, but complaining to God is faith. And you see that in the Psalms. They say, I'm bringing my complaint to you, God. Psalm 62, verse 8, it says, Trust in the Lord at all times. Pour out your heart to him because God is our refuge. It associates trusting God constantly at all times with being real with him, communicating with him, being honest about what's going on in us. So brothers and sisters, bring your anxieties to God. Bring what's really going on, on inside of you to God. He loves that. He says, cast your anxieties on me because I care for you. I care for you. So we, we see that, that the Psalms invite us to pour out our hearts to God, but then what's the pattern of the Psalms? Is it just to focus on our feelings? Not at all. It's to bring those to God and then remember who he is and what he's promised. Over and over again, the psalmist reminds himself, this is who God is and this, he's what, this is what he's promised. That's how our faith is strengthened. So Abram's honest question, it brings us to our second main point, and that's God's confirmation. 
God's confirmation. We, we see this immediately after Abram's question of how can I know it in verse 8. Then we see in 9 and 11, God tells Abram, bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So he brought all these to him, cut them in half, and laid the pieces opposite each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. God, he responds to Abram's question with a direction to bring these different animals to him. Isn't this kind of strange? This is such a weird passage. I remember reading this in the past and being like, I I don't know, this is strange. Turn the page. I don't quite get what's going on here. Now, the reason for this, it's not immediately obvious to us, but I want you to notice in verse 10, it is to Abram. So God tells him, for, tells him to bring these animals. Abram brings them. And then on his own initiative, he just he cuts them in half. He cuts them in two, and he makes an aisle with them. So these are animals cut in two, put facing each other. And as wild as that seems, as just weird as that seems, it actually makes perfect sense when you realize what that meant in Abram's culture. See, this is how very serious contracts or covenants were made in the ancient Middle East. Very similar rituals were done by surrounding nations. Even in the Bible, in Jeremiah 34, there's a covenant between Israel and God that's very similar to this. And basically, what's happening is that it's involving signing on the dotted line. This is their version of signing on the dotted line, only it's like on steroids. (laughs) Because in our culture, when you sign on the dotted line, there's consequences when you don't follow through. Like if you get an apartment, you have to sign, sign the lease, you're going to pay this much, you're going to keep the apartment in this condition, and if you don't follow through with those, there's consequences. If you've ever bought a house, it's like there's even more paperwork. It's like you have to sign a million, a million different pieces of paper. It's like you're signing your life away. But there's consequences if you don't follow through with that agreement. Same with marriage. When I officiate marriages, when people get married... It's great that they have already expressed that they love each other, but until they sign on the dotted line, they're not legally married. And once they sign, then there's consequences. If they say, we don't love each other anymore, we're not going to be together anymore, well, there's consequences because you signed. You signed on the dotted, dotted line. And in their culture, this is what it meant to sign on the dotted line. As they walked through the carcasses that had been cut in two, what they were communicating is... If I don't keep my word, may what happened to these animals happen to me. They're saying, this is how serious this commitment is, this promise is. Now, that's, I think, compared to our signing on the dotted line, it's a lot more intense, isn't it? It makes signing on the dotted line look pretty weak. You know, like, this would really spice up the home buying process if you had to, like, cut a bunch of animals into you, you know, with your realtor and the person you're buying the house from. This is what was going on. Abraham, he, he knows that God is going to make a covenant with him. But what he didn't know and, and what no one in the ancient world would have anticipated is how this covenant was made. They would have never expected what happens next. Now, in verse 12, this covenant ceremony, it gets set up. That sunset, the day was ending and Abram fell into a deep sleep. And With that deep sleep, there was a great terror and darkness that suddenly gripped him. Verses 13 through 16, there's a revelation from God. I think the the terror and the darkness, I think it's God's holy presence. 
And it's the weightiness of his message that I think weighs on Abram. In verses 13 through 16, the Lord revealed this to Abram. Know this for certain. Your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward, they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Don't miss the irony here. Abraham, Abraham asked, how can he know that he would possess the land? And God responded by telling him, know this for certain. Your descendants are going to be enslaved. I don't want you to, to miss how hard this would have been for Abram to hear. His descendants are going to be enslaved and they're going to horribly suffer, suffer for centuries in a foreign land. And we know that this happened in Egypt. Actually, the very first people reading this, they were the ones born as slaves in Egypt. And they saw God bring them out. They saw God judge the nation that oppressed them and make them rich as they left, just like verse 14 promises. So Abraham, here's what's going to happen to his descendants. And this is the first time that Abram learns that he's not going to personally take possession of the promised land. It's going to happen with his descendants, through his descendants, but he won't personally ever own the land. This is not what he was expecting this meant that for the rest of his life, he was going to have to live in a country not his own. He would always be a foreigner living in someone else's land. And so this was very heavy news. Now, before we get to the covenant ceremony, I want to briefly comment about God's statement about the Amorites. So verse 16, look at that again. It says, in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Now, do you know what God is is saying here. He's saying, I'm not going to give your descendants the land here for another 400 years because it's not yet time to judge the Amorites. The Amorites refer to all the tribes that were living in the land of, of Canaan in Abram's day, and the Old Testament records their shocking immorality. That there's sexual perversions, there's a list of, of them in Leviticus, and God says, you can't, my people, you cannot live the way that they do. It also emphasizes their child sacrifice. And I'm not going to tell you some of the, the customs of child sacrifice back then, but it, it was horrific what they would do with their live babies. They would kill them in gruesome ways because they thought it would bring blessing from their twisted gods. And these people, they had, they had given themselves over to incredible depravity. And so when God brought his people out of Egypt and brought them back to this land that he promised, he told them to totally wipe out the Canaanites living there. And many critics of the Bible, they framed it as genocide. But what they do is they attempt to make God appear to be a moral monster. And some of you have probably heard that argument before, but nothing could be further from the truth. Genesis has already shown God's heart for all the nations and his plan to, to bless each one of them through Abram's promised offspring. And so the conquest of the promised land, it has nothing to do with ethnicity and everything to do with morality. It's not about ethnicity at all. It's about their gross immorality. And so the, the complete destruction of the Amorites, it was God's patient and perfectly timed judgment on them that he sovereignly promised 400 years ago. God is not being rash. God's not flying out of control, as some people claim. But his judgments are always perfectly calibrated. 
I mean, think about his patience, waiting four, 400 years before the time was right for his judgment. This, again, confirms to us this little verse that we can, we can trust God's justice. We can trust God's judgment. And we can also trust that God is completely sovereign over all of human history and the rise and fall of all nations, including our own. So that's what's going on in, in verse 16. That ends the, the heavy revelation that God gives to Abram. But now we come to the actual covenant ceremony. And this is where Abram finds the, the assurance to his faith that he was seeking. Verse 17, it says, When the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, I give this land to your offspring from the brook of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River, the land of the Canaanites, the Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hethites, Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and the Jebusites. I think Moses forgot to add, and the termites. <laughs> sounds, more like, sounds more like a bunch of bugs <laughs> that, that a pest control person is going to take out than nations. But what, what is happening here is God is getting very specific. He's saying, this is the land that you're going to possess. This, this is where it's going to be at. And these are the people who are, who are occupying it now, the tribes who are occupying it now. And this promise was at least partially fulfilled during the time of King, Sol King Solomon's reign. And most commentators believe it, it points ahead to a greater fulfillment in the future. So it's clear here, the, the promise of land, it's strongly confirmed that God made to Abraham. It's even specified. But I think a, a question I've had before is, what's the deal with the smoking pot and the flaming torch? What's, what's happening there? Well, this is a theophany. It's a physical manifestation of the invisible God. And it's the first of many times in the scriptures where, where God appears in the form of smoke and fire. And you can think about the burning bush for Moses. Or you can think about the smoke and fire on top of Mount Sinai when God appeared and gave the Ten Commandments. Or the pillar of fire and the cloud that God led his people with in the wilderness. Smoke and fire, they're associated with God's holy presence and his judgment. And that's, that makes what happens next even more remarkable. It's now the full dark of night, and the holy presence of God, it appears in this thick smoke and this brilliant flame, this blazing torch. And so it goes from being dark to now the, the scene is lit up. You can see the carcasses again, cut in half, the blood that would have spilled. It's glistening in the light. So the whole scene is before us. And this is the precise moment that God formally made his covenant with Abram. It tells us that it's, it's on this day that God made his covenant. And Abram, he saw it all, either in a vision or God perhaps woke him up from his deep sleep. And in this moment, God confirmed his promise to Abram with a formal, legally binding covenant to strengthen Abram's faith. He'd already made a promise to Abram, but now he's saying to Abram, if I don't keep my promise... May what happened to these animals happen to me. That's what he's communicating. Now, Tim Keller, in his, in his message on this, he points out that, that the infinite and the immutable, the immortal God, he's telling Abraham, if I don't keep my promise to you, may I become finite. May, may I become killable. May what's happened to these animals, may that happen to me. And as dramatic as that was, let me tell you what would have blown Abram's mind and all ancient readers who encountered this passage. What would have really blown them away 
is that God, the great ruler, he walked through the aisle alone. He walked through the aisle alone. When people made covenants, they would walk through it together. From what I understand, kings, when they would conquer other people, at times they would just make their conquered subjects walk through the aisle. They'd make them form a covenant. But what was unthinkable is that a king would walk through alone. Why would a king bind himself to some, someone lesser than him, someone underneath him in a covenant without giving expectations for them? What would blow ancient readers' minds away is that God walked through the carcasses alone. Now, commentators, they point out the unconditional nature of this covenant with Abram, that God promises to, to give Abram descendants and to give the descendants land, and this covenant is made independent of what Abram does. We know that Abram believes God. He's believed the promise of God already. And God is saying, Abram, you can, I, I guarantee that I'm going to do this. I promise you, even, even somehow on my death, that this will happen regardless of what you do. I also appreciate how Tim Keller points out that often our concern about God's faithfulness, it's not so much God's faithfulness as our own faithfulness. We're not so much concerned that God won't be faithful, it's we are so unfaithful. We struggle to actually obey God the way we know we should. We don't honor the, the covenant that God has called us to as we should. And I just want you to think about how powerfully this covenant would have spoken to Abram's faith. Now, how can I know they're going to do this? And God takes the ceremony that, that he would have been familiar with, and he walks through it alone. It's going to happen. Independent of what you do, Abram, I'm going to do this. Abraham had believed God's promise, but this is an incredible confirmation. This, there's a, an unconditional pledge made here from God to fulfill his promise. And this pledge, what I think is interesting, is that this is one of the greatest examples of the tension that builds throughout the whole Old Testament as you read it. And the tension is that God has these promises, he has these covenants that are unconditional to bless his people. But then just a few generations later at Mount Sinai, you get a covenant where God says to his people, if you obey me, then I'll bless you. But if you disobey me, if you violate the covenant, then you'll be cursed. You'll actually be cut off from me. And so there's this tension. How, how can God be unconditionally good to his people when we violate the covenant stipulations that he gives all throughout his word? It, it seems like both of those covenants can't be fulfilled at the same time. They seem mutually mutually irreconcilable. Well, the answer to that question, it also helps to explain the tension that we feel with how can a holy God, a perfect God who hates sin, how can he accept us as sinners? How can God welcome us into his eternal promised land of heaven? God had made the promise of Israel to Abram. God has promised believers the new heavens and the new earth. But how can God give that to us when he has to punish each and every sin? God's eyes are, are too pure to look on evil because he's the creator of the universe. He has to punish all the injustice in the world, including our own sin. The Bible's clear. God hates sin more than we can fathom, and we can never pay for our sin on our own. You know, when you sin, in many ways, it's like running a credit card. 
and there's a debt that accrues. Every time you sin, it's like you run the card. You run the card, and the, the, the amount, it just continues to grow. And there's no way that even our good works can offset that. You can't, you can't balance it by trying to do good things. And even if you could, we couldn't come close to actually paying off that debt. You know, this kind of sank in more this weekend as I talked to dozens of people during Mission South. I probably talked to 20 to 30 people and got to talk to them about the Lord. And almost every single one, when I talked to them about, how do you think people are right with God? Or how do you think people go to heaven? It's some version of you try and be a good person. You try and live the right way. You, you're really sorry when you make mistakes and you, 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 kinda, you learn from it and you do better. And it's the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. Even people who've grown up going to church their whole lives, it is so sad. And that's why verse six from last week is so important. It says, Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's an accounting term. It's money. The idea is Abram was not righteous and he was given righteousness. Righteousness was put in to his account. Not because he kept the law. God hadn't given him the law yet. It was because he believed the promises of God. No one is made right with God by going to church, by trying to be a good person, by cleaning up their, their act. We're saved by believing God. We're saved by faith alone. But a follow-up question is, faith in what? Faith in what? Do you just have to believe that God exists? Do you just have to believe that Jesus Christ exists? The Bible says even the demons believe in God and shudder. This passage points towards what we need to believe in. The Bible says the only way that sin can be paid for is by death. The wages of sin is death. Now God, he never broke his covenant with Abram. He never broke his covenant with Abram's descendants, but his, pay, his people were unfaithful to him over and over and over again. And because of God's holiness and righteousness, there was only one way for him to be faithful to his covenants and still save sinners like us. The only way for him to do that is that God had to come and take the curse of covenant unfaithfulness onto himself. See, Jesus is God. Jesus is, is God, and he was slaughtered in our place on the cross. He was treated as a covenant breaker, even though he was the only one to perfectly fulfill God's covenant requirements, he was treated as a covenant breaker. He was treated like those animals. His blood was spilled so that God could forgive our sins. What do you have to believe to be saved? Romans 3 says that we're saved by putting our faith in his blood. Not that God exists, not that Jesus exists and was a great moral teacher, you're saved by believing that Jesus Christ had to die in your place, that that is your only hope. God had to die for you so that he could still be holy and then offer you acceptance, offer you forgiveness. Have you trusted Christ like that? Have you realized that that's your only hope? It's not 99% Jesus and then 1% you. Like mainly Jesus, but I need to also, I, have to, I also have to make it, make myself right with God. No, it's 100% on what Christ has done. Now, if you trust God, God will come into your life and begin to change you. But good works don't factor into our salvation at all. They're the result of genuine salvation. The attitude that we need to come to Christ with is that if he doesn't save us, then there's no hope for us to be saved. If Jesus doesn't come through on his promises, then we have no hope. 
Now, if you are here and you've never trusted Christ before, then that's what you need to do. You need to give your life to Christ. You need to trust in what he did for you on the cross. You don't need to, to clean up your life, get your act together. You need to turn to Christ. Now, for those of you who are believers, I have one practical application here, and that's embrace the waiting of faith. Embrace the waiting of faith. Spiritual growth and intimacy with Christ, it takes time. You have to continue to spend time in his word. You have to continue to pray. You have to continue to gather with other believers and live out God's commands. It's a lifelong process. And just like it would have been foolish for Moses to, I'm sorry, for Abram to give up on God's promises just because his timeline was different. It'd be so foolish for us to give up on the means that God has given us to grow closer to him just because we're not seeing the change that we want as quickly as we would hope. Now there's one other aspect of the waiting of faith that's tied to all of the others. And it's that the best of God's promises for us are not going to be fully realized in this life. They're not going to be fully realized in, life, in this life. So many churches, the way they appeal to people is they say, if you follow God, if you trust Jesus, your life is going to get better now. You can't guarantee people that. Nothing's better than walking with Christ, but God doesn't promise that you're going to have nice circumstances. He doesn't promise that things are going to go well for you. He promises that you'll get him in the process. Now, nothing is better than that. Nothing's better than walking with Christ in this life. But because of the flesh and the world and the devil, walking with Christ, it's always going to be a spiritual battle on this side of eternity. And where we get into trouble so often as believers is we want heaven on earth now. We want heaven on earth now in our marriages and in our friendships and in our families and at our jobs, even in the church. We want heaven on earth now. What we need to learn is to, to, like Abraham, ask God to confirm his promises, ask God to strengthen our faith. And what we need to learn to do is to live now with focus on then, that the best part of God's promises to us, it's not in this life, it's going to be when we're with Jesus, we're going to be in his physical presence in the new heavens and the new earth. Just to close, I want to read what the author of Hebrews says in describing how Abram responded when he found out he wasn't going to inherit the land. It was going to be his descendants, not him. How did Abram respond? By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Brothers and sisters, that's what we need to do. We need to ask God to strengthen our faith and we need to live for what's eternal instead of focusing on here and now. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that it is so relevant for every area of our lives. Lord Jesus, thank you that we can have peace with you. We can have confidence that you'll fulfill your promises because we look to the cross. I thank you that as believers, we have greater assurance, even than Abram did with that incredible ceremony, that profound ceremony. We have something so much more as we look to the cross. You didn't just make a, a promise to be willing to die, but you actually died, not because you were unfaithful, but to cover our unfaithfulness, to forgive our unfaithfulness. God, if you didn't spare your own son, how will you not also along with him graciously give us all things? God, convince us of that, convince us of your goodness, Help us to be more expectant of you to fulfill your promises, but help us to be ones who, who wait on you. 
Help us to be ones who are patient, waiting, waiting for the promises as we seek you. And God, I pray for us as a, as a church that we'd be able to, to by the way we live, by our, by our conversations, we'd be able to point our, our neighbors more and more to you to have that same hope. So thank you for this time. We pray, pray all of this in your great name, Lord Jesus. Amen. We're going to continue our service now with